0: Welcome to Building Belonging, a podcast of the New York City Bar Association and its Office for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging. In this episode, is the legal profession making good on its mental health promises? Today we're joined by Eileen Travis, Executive Director of the City Bar Lawyer Assistance Program. Eileen has 30 years experience in mental health services and has been part of the spearhead of the legal profession's growing awareness of and respect for mental health and well-being. She gave us a wide angle view on how far the industry has come and how far it has still to go.
1: The well-being stuff is wonderful and it keeps coming and we keep doing it, but the underlying issue is really a culture shift.
0: Eileen also shared what she has learned on the ground, working with practitioners throughout the profession.
1: This feeling certainly with a lot of associates that they're on their own, that they don't get proper mentoring, that there is not enough collaboration. Of course, the big issue is buy-in from leadership.
0: But there's a hopeful outlook for those looking at the next generation of mental health in the legal profession.
2: Gen Zers, if you are listening, keep it up. You have a lot of power here. Absolutely. Be really selective. And also, firms, it's really easy for you to stand out amongst your peers by doing the right thing.
0: Opinions expressed are those of the speakers, and not necessarily of the city bar. Here's your host, Tanya martinez Galanucci.
2: Welcome back to Building Belonging. Today, we are joined by Eileen Travis, who is the Executive Director of the Lawyer Assistance Program here at the New York City Bar and also the Founding Director of this program here at the New York City Bar. We are so happy to have you here, Eileen. You're one of the first people I really connected with at the City Bar and I felt like we had this synergy in thinking about well-being and belonging and what it means to really be aligned on those issues to move the needle forward in the industry. So we're really excited to hear from you. I'm Tanya martinez Galanucci, the executive director of The Office. I'm going to hand it over. I am Angie Avila-Lanciati, and I am the
3: manager of communications and development with The Office. And I'm going to throw it over to my good
4: friend. And I'm Mary Ellen LaRosa, and I am the senior diversity and inclusion coordinator for ODEEP. I'm going to pass it over to our guest today. Eileen, if you could just tell us a little bit about what belonging means to you and give us a little bit of your background. Absolutely.
1: This was really sort of a challenging thing for me to think about, just using the term belonging, but it really took me back. I am a child of the 60s. I grew up in the 60s, and this is very reminiscent of that time when we were really Searching, everybody was searching for their authentic self and our own identity and who we were. And it's as relevant today as it was all those years ago when I was in my formative years growing up. The idea of being accepted by your group, by your friends, by your family, it certainly broadened to, when I think about communities, I think about the larger world community being accepted by the larger world community And making a contribution to that, very important for me, being accepted by all the other communities I belong to, the community of family, my neighbors, my religious community, extended on and on to my friends, my support system, my work community. So important to be accepted by, accepted, trusted, loved for who I am, all of me. So body, mind, and spirit, how I look, how I feel. To just be accepted for all of that and not have to think about the parts of me that are not perfect. I was talking to a law student about this yesterday, about how unrealistic it is to strive for perfectionism, which we never, it's just not within the human world to be perfect. We're not supposed to be. And having issues is really how we learn to be better. We're always learning to be better, not learning to be perfect. So belonging to me is sort of the underlying reason why I'm here, why why we're all here is really to think about where we fit in the world and to be supported, loved, and trusted for who we are and what we do. And this, I think, gave me the idea when I was very young that I wanted to be in a profession where I was helping people. I didn't know that was social work. When I was very young, I didn't know what it was going to be. I thought of many different things. But social work kind of fell into place for me. And that's that's also a community that I belong to.
3: Thank you so much, Eileen. Every time we speak, I always leave feeling so good. We've actually been working together for quite some time, for five years, yes. you and I. Yes. So my first question to you is, can you tell us and our listeners about lap at the city bar. and What type of services does it provide and who's eligible to receive them?
1: Okay. First of all, I have to say, lawyer's assistance is all around the world. Lawyer's assistance exists in every state since the 1970s. I think the first program was uh, established in the 1970s. It started as a very grassroots movement with lawyers helping other lawyers at that time in the 70s who were struggling with alcoholism got sober and then started a community of helping their fellow attorneys who were struggling with alcohol and then other substances. They were large groups and eventually they went to their local bar associations and they formed committees. The Lawyers Assistance Committee at the bar was here long before I started. I think they started in the 80s. I started in the 90s. And then the bar associations, because we recognized that lawyers, law students, and their family members were struggling with many other things than just substance use. The bar association started to hire professionals like myself to expand the services that we were able to offer. And at this point, and the wonderful thing about the City Bar is that it gives us tremendous latitude so that we can help. Any kind of legal professional and anybody related to a legal professional, even if it's a distant cousin, and we can also work with lawyers or law students who are from other areas of the country or the world who happen to be in New York at that time, we can also reach out to them. I'm very grateful for that because there are some states where you have to be barred in that state. You have to be admitted in that state to use their lawyer's assistance program. That's not true of our program. So our services extend to law students, starting in law school, law students, lawyers, judges, paralegals, staff. We work with staff of the Bar Association. We work with staff of the court, staff of, of law schools, colleagues. Very often we'll get a call from an attorney that said, I have an old law school buddy who I just spoke to recently who's going through something. What can I do for them? So it's really anyone related to the legal profession that might be struggling with any kind of problem that we can help to find resources for. Of course, the majority of individuals that call us are either struggling with a mental health issue, a substance use issue. It could be a personal issue. It could be a relationship issue, marital or with their, boy or the, or with their partner, or a professional issue. It could be a law student struggling in law school maybe with attention deficit disorder, or just struggling with the workload, or struggling with anxiety. It could be a lawyer who is struggling with where they're at in their law career. Maybe they're unhappy with the area of law they're practicing in and they want help to think about where else they can move. Or maybe they're moving towards retirement and they want want help in thinking about what the next stage is in their life. So any particular problem that they're having that really is affecting their well-being and that as social workers, we can help find resources. We are resource people. So we have some direct services that we offer. We do offer, we don't do therapy, but we offer supportive counseling. It's very different. So sometimes we speak to an individual who's not quite ready to take the next step uh, and we will work with them for a while to help them get there. We do short-term counseling for that. Or they have a unique kind of problem that they just need that individual support uh, in addition to other support that they may have. We offer a really unique service called peer support. So that grassroots organization still exists. So I work with a committee here at the bar and also many volunteer attorneys who themselves have struggled with either a mental health or substance use problem who volunteer their time to give back to the profession because people were there to help them when they needed it. So if I speak to, say, a lawyer who's struggling and I ask them, would you like to speak to another lawyer who's had a similar problem? And they say yes. Once I connect those two people, whatever they discuss is completely confidential. So the two things I really should mention are, this is a free program. We do not charge for any of the services that we offer. And it's completely confidential. We know how important confidentiality is to law students and lawyers and judges. So we have the same level of confidentiality as lawyer-client privilege, which is actually protected under a judiciary law. So our only goal really is to help. So when an individual calls us, whether it's about a problem they're having or about somebody they're concerned about, the first thing I say when I answer the phone is, how can I help you? And we talk about the problem they're having. We start to identify some solutions. We set up a plan of different ways we can help them. We have great resources in the community, uh, including many clinicians who themselves were practicing attorneys before they became clinical social workers, psychologists. We even have a JDND. We have a practicing attorney who is now a psychiatrist. Um, And the great thing about going to a clinician like that for an attorney or a law student or a judge is that they really understand the stresses of the profession. And then they also have the clinical expertise to take a deeper dive into what's going on with that particular individual.
2: Thank you so much for that background. And every time, you know, I've heard this so many times and every time I hear it, it just fills my heart with hope. Because I do think that self-care, well-being, especially being attuned to our mental health and our needs is so critical to the success of lawyers, young and old, all lawyers, all people. Forget about lawyers, regardless of what your profession is. Absolutely. And I've been very open about my own journey with mental health and how coaching and therapy have helped me. And I will always tell those stories because I do think it's important for folks to hear people who they might see themselves in talk about those struggles. And I'm just so thankful that we have you and that you do this work. And so I was hoping that you can give us a little bit more of a background or summary of how you've seen the landscape change. You said you've been doing this at the bar since the 90s. We're now in 2023. (laughs) OMG. And I know that we've we've spoken about this in the past. There's been some really big milestones, like the Patrick Krill report, for instance, and just trends that we're seeing across the board. So if you can talk to us a little bit about what you've seen change in the industry in the last 20, 30 or so years. Okay. That
1: Krill Report, which is often called, which was actually co-sponsored by the ABA and the Hazelton Betty Ford Foundation. Um, that report was done in 2016. And the reason for it, uh, the reason for the study actually was to measure the incidence of substance use and mental health problems in the profession. We really have not had a study done in many years, but mental health and substance use, the incidence was really why lawyers' assistance programs were established in the first place. So the statistics that came out of that study in 2016 were not surprised. Most of the statistics were not surprising. They were all in line with what we already knew, 21% anxiety, 23% stress, depression was very big, chronic stress was very big, the kind of stress that stays with you, you wake up within the morning, it stays with you all day long, you go to sleep at night, you wake up in the next morning, and it's still there. But there was one statistic that was really very concerning, and that was that one-third of the 13,000 lawyers that participated in the study turned out to be young attorneys in their first attempt of practice. And they were most affected by either a mental health or substance use problem, or in some cases, both. It's very common for individuals that are struggling with anxiety, depression, stress to self-medicate with marijuana, with alcohol. And then if you have that psychological and biological predisposition to develop a problem. Now you have two problems. You have the mental health problem that's never really been addressed, just self-medicated. And now you have a dependency and that's called co-occurring disorders. And about 65% or so of individuals have that co-occurring disorder. Very often an individual with a substance use issue, once they get into recovery for a couple of years, will then discover they struggle also struggle with anxiety, depression, or another mental health problem. When that statistic came in, the ABA and all of us were very concerned that because it was such a tremendous change in trend that so many young lawyers were coming into the profession or acknowledging in the profession that they were struggling with these issues and basically said, we've got to do something. And if we don't do something now, what is the future going to look like? So the ABA started a well-being task force, really propelled this chapter of well-being that we're still... You know, that's still growing in the profession at that particular time. And I think the basic issue in this report that came out of that well-being task force is that all areas of the legal profession, we all have to work together to make a healthier profession and to have healthier lawyers, healthier law students. And the bottom line, of course, is, well, the well-being stuff is wonderful and it keeps coming and we keep doing it. But the underlying issue is really a culture shift. Because, for example, a lot of the large law firms across the country have hired well-being professionals. There's well-being happening in law schools. There's well-being happening at bar associations. There's well-being happening at nonprofits at all areas. But if you are working at a large law firm, And this particular firm has hired a well-being professional and they have wonderful, they have meditation three times a week, they have yoga twice a week, they have groups that meet, they do all kinds of wonderful things. But you're an associate working 12 to 15 hours a day, you're going to have a lot of trouble accessing those wonderful services that are being offered. So there's still this gap in having the services, which is really wonderful, in their ability to raise awareness. Before this happened in 2016, we rarely went to law firms. We were rarely invited into a law firm to do a presentation. Suddenly the floodgates opened and we were like in so many of the large law firms. And that is a result of something else that came out of the study, which was called the pledge. And that is part of the ABA as well. So the pledge is a seven-step document That actually that law firm or a bar association or a law school can sign on to agreeing to number one, raise awareness, bring in education, open the discussion and talk about the the fact that these things do exist and there is help available. To really cut down on the appearance of alcohol or the use of alcohol at events, especially events at large law firms, events at bar associations either have alcohol-free events or if you're going to have alcohol, have alternatives. If you're going to have a signature cocktail, have a signature mocktail. So that, that was another thing. To have easier access for individuals and support employees that may need to take time off to address a mental health or substance abuse problem, and if they need accommodations when they come back to work, to offer accommodations, either a shorter work week or time off to attend outpatient treatment, things like that. So it's been very successful. I think currently worldwide there are 210 signatories. Many of the large law firms in, that are based in New York and across the country have signed on to the pledge. And it's really wonderful because they're really paying attention to the importance of all of this. And well-being stresses self-care. I think they're synonymous. I don't think you can be in a state of well-being unless you're taking care of yourself. So self-care is really a very important part of this whole movement.
2: Thank you for sharing all of that. There's so many gems you've just given us. I don't even know where to begin but, you know, I was uh, a first-year associate in big law in 2016 when the report dropped. And I remember all the hype around it. I mean, I myself got to see Patrick Krill talk about the report in person because he was doing the rounds around the firms. And so yep. I was like, oh, it's lunch and he's here. I might as well hear from the horse's mouth, right? And there's so many things that you've touched on. I 100% agree. There's a huge gap. There's a huge gap in between... What we're saying needs to happen and the access to those things. Because you're right. All of these big firms, they're, they ha- they've hired staff. There are meditations available. You even get money to buy your own services or I got a gym. I have a home gym. Thank you, Big Law. Appreciate you. So like it's there, but there is a huge gap in who can access it and why and when. And a lot of that has to do with culture. Yes. A lot of that has to do with bias. Mm -hmm. A lot of that has to do with, oh my gosh, this is my least favorite term when we talk about this, but this is what they use. The business model, using air quotes. I have a lot of strong feelings about the business model. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen that semi-viral slide that has been circulating recently about the unspoken rules of big law. I don't know if you've seen it. I have, and I want to say it. I say it's (laughs) semi-viral because... I think the folks who have circulated it have a certain amount of safety in being able to circulate it and talk Mm -hmm. about it out loud. Mm -hmm. And even what was shared was a screenshot from someone's phone, Mm -hmm. right? Someone was like, oh, Uh, wow, someone said the quiet parts out loud and we need to capture this. But some of the rules I can tell you off the top of my head was you're available 24-7. No excuses, no explanations. If you had any part of a document and something wrong happens, it's your fault. I don't care how little or how much you had. Everything has to be perfect. You are in the service industry and you need to serve your clients, your partners and associates. And what they say is right and nothing you say can contradict that. I mean, I'm speaking in very broad strokes and Mm -hmm. I'm not quoting verbatim, but those Mm -hmm. were like pretty pretty close to verbatim. (laughs) (laughs) And when we talk about leadership, And when we talk about creating inclusive cultures, these unspoken rules are exactly contradictory. And we have a really hard time getting people to buy in. I can't even tell you, so many partners or folks who we meet will look at me like, can you believe these people? They don't want to work 24-7. What is up with this generation? No, what is up with you? We all deserve to live. Um, And one of the things that was really surprising to me Coming into big law, I was a teacher, and I would say teaching is also a really high-stress job, right? Yes, and there's trauma, even vicarious trauma, just being a teacher. Like- I've ha- I have had kids who became pregnant. I had kids who were involved in gang violence. I had a kid once whose father lit his mother on fire mm. and then came to school the next day. Mm. It is really traumatic, and I will tell you, my mental health suffered more as a lawyer in corporate America than Mm -hmm. it did in the Bronx, in New York City, in a public school. Yeah. And I couldn't believe how many people I saw, and most of them were my peers and friends and people I knew and cared about, were taking mental health leaves. Mental health leaves because Mm -hmm. they were literally on the brink. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that we have a culture crisis in the industry. We have a culture crisis. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about how we can bridge that gap.
1: Well, I certainly agree with you. And that, unfortunately, is one of the things that has not changed in the profession is the stress level. Starting in law school, there still is this expectation of perfectionism, of course, which again is an ideal, does not really exist. This level of responsibility, this feeling with, uh, certainly with a lot of associates that they're on their own that they don't get proper mentoring, that there is not enough collaboration. Of course, the big issue is buy-in from leadership. That is the big issue. And I remember when we started to make the rounds at the large law firms, and I actually did several presentations with Patrick Krell, there was only one law firm when the head of the firm introduced us. He came in, and the way he introduced us was to talk about himself and about something that happened in his life. It was some, somebody very close to him who had a very serious illness and having to cope with that illness and the trauma of having to cope with that. And the fact that we all have emotions and we all have feelings. And in law school, you're supposed to be, you learn to put those things aside because they only interfere with your ability to be a lawyer. They don't see them as contributions. So the fact that he opened up and spoke about himself, I, I was so inspiring, and that is a big problem for many, especially the well-being people, in the large firms, is, yes, they put the leaders put their stamp of approval on, yes, okay, we'll hire well-being. We'll offer all of these wonderful well-being tools for our staff. But if they're not present so that the lawyers who are that are working for them can see that they really do support it if they're not part of the conversation then it's you know it can be extremely frustrating so that i think is one of the most important things especially for firms is that the leadership is present in the conversation that they take part in the conversation and they really buy into this being really important so that the lawyers the whether you're a lawyer you're associate you're a partner or staff understands that this is real, that they really understand how important this is. And they really do believe that this is a, that this is really important part of practice. I mean, I think we are so fortunate at the Bar Association to have Brett as our leader, because we know that he really buys into everything that we do. He buys into this idea of us collaborating with each other to really be the best that we can possibly be. And he is present for all of this. So I think if the law firms or nonprofits or law schools, whoever the institution happens to be, if they see that their leaders are really buying into the importance of self-care, the importance of well-being, I think it'll be a lot more successful than it is now.
2: Thank you so much for that, Eileen. I 100% agree. I think leadership has to be on board. And just another point or another few things I think also matter. Accountability, right? Absolutely. If we're seeing trends that folks are needing mental health leaves consistently, that should be a huge red flag for leadership, for the firm. Like something's broken, you need to fix it. The culture of your environment, of your work environment, most people spend one third of their lives at work. Uh, lawyers, especially big law lawyers, probably spend a lot more because of the hours that you mentioned. Yeah. If people need to take mental health leave, that is not self care. Mm -hmm. That's emergency. Mm -hmm. That is emergency actions to take to deal with someone who's in crisis, Mm -hmm. right? I think the idea of self care has also really been kind of, I don't want to say perverted, but we have really skewed views about what self care means. Self care Mm -hmm. is not a luxury. Mm-hmm. Self care is not a gift you give yourself when you've done a lot of work. Mm-hmm. You need to engage in self care every day to make mm-hmm. sure that you are healthy and mm-hmm. viable and able to think well. The mm-hmm. neuroscience behind this is so important, mm-hmm. right? People need to exercise for your brain to work well, not Absolutely. just for weight loss, right? Not just for maintaining your body. You need a certain level of functioning in your brain to be able to think critically and consciously. And I love the point you made about some of the biases in the industry. Like feelings are bad. You can't have, you can't think objectively if you have feelings. When really feelings are another asset and are a great way to understand your moral compass and whether you feel aligned and whether something feels right or wrong. And it'll allow you to kind of kick the wheels on some of the issues. You can have feelings and be objective. You can have feelings and make amazing legal arguments in the in the other direction. Mm-hmm. And so pretending that they aren't there actually stifles people.
1: Absolutely. And
2: doesn't allow them to feel like they belong. And it's assets that we're not tapping into that we absolutely can be tapping into. So this is all very helpful. And I'm going to kick it over to Mary Ellen, who has the next question for you.
4: This narrative that we've been discussing might be shifting a little with uh, Gen Z now entering the workforce. Could you talk a little bit about Kind of how maybe you've seen that shift in terms of like mental health days, self care taking precedence and things like that. Well,
1: this is a very interesting group. And I think a very challenging group, especially for the legal profession, because they're bringing different values. Self care is definitely something they value tremendously, flexibility is something they value. They really do believe in work life balance and that it's important and that it's not just a concept. It's, an, it's as you said, Tanya, it's a necessity. It's something that we all should be practicing on a daily basis and integrating into our life, not just when it's an emergency, but it's something that it really should be, should really be part of it. I think they're much more collaborative, mainly because they've grown up on computers and they're involved in a lot of on-site groups and they like interacting with people. That's one part of it. On the other part, I think, especially with COVID, they have really felt this isolation, this idea of isolation, which is against their belief that we really should be much more collaborative and much more in touch with each other. But they have been isolated and I think that's that's taken a toll. I certainly don't have to tell you. They are the most diverse generation that we have. And they definitely value diversity. It's really part of who they are, their belief system, their experience in growing up. So I think they definitely bring a tremendous challenge, especially to legal employers who may see their ideas as, well, they're coddled, they're spoiled, they're a spoiled generation because they want time off or they, you know, they believe in time off or they believe in self-care we survived without that. They should be able to survive without that. But it's not going to stop. I mean, this is really the beginning. This tide is really turning. So I think it's, you know, we really have to take a look at it and we really have to take a look at what they're saying and really listening to what they're saying and try to support them as best as possible. Because the other thing the profession is interested in is retention, you know, is training, is The value that they bring is the investment that they put into training them, and they want value back for that. And if they're not going to compromise in some ways, they're not going to be open to listening to what they have to say and what they need, they're not going to get their needs met either. So there has to be a meeting of the minds in terms of what Gen Z is saying, in terms of what's important for them and for the future.
2: And, you know, what you've said, Eileen, we've heard over and over again. We hear it from the recruiters. We hear it from the law schools. We hear it from the firms. They're like, we have folks who won't even interview. They're like, I want nothing of it. I know what you're selling. I have no interest. And I get it. Honestly, Eileen, I I feel like if I knew then what I knew now, maybe I would have made the same choice. Mm-hmm. And don't get me wrong. I I'm really grateful for all the experiences I got and where it brought me. I was able to climb out of generational poverty Mm -hmm. because I worked in big law for a significant amount of time in my life. Mm -hmm. But that was a sacrifice, Mm -hmm. right? And not everyone's willing to sacrifice their health, their well-being. And it really did. I I was at a place where I didn't recognize myself
4: anymore. Mm
2: -hmm. I was working crazy hours. I couldn't see my kids. I couldn't see my family. I couldn't plan vacation. I couldn't. I wasn't happy. And now when I think about since I started this role, my evenings at five o'clock, you know what I do? I play with my kids Mm -hmm. and we play for hours Mm -hmm. and I feel so happy and so fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And I'm not even kidding without working out, without dieting, nothing. Just a month into switching roles, I lost 10 pounds. Wow. 10 (laughs) within one month. That's a lot for a little person. I'm a but tiny it's person. That's a lot. That's yeah, right. yeah. Like I'm a, but in that first month in June last year, after just one month, I lost 10 pounds. And mm-hmm. that just goes to show you how deep and intricate that mind-body connection is.
1: Absolutely. Because I
2: hadn't changed anything else. I didn't change my diet. I wasn't exercising more. And it wasn't anything like that. But I, that my cortisol levels obviously mm-hmm. dropped Absolutely. significantly. Mm-hmm. Right? There's just so much there. And I don't think that a way forward isn't possible. I think that there is a way forward possible. And I think if people are saying, hey, no single person should be available 24 7 all the time for corporate America emergencies, we need to listen. Ever heard of shifts? You can okay. create 24 7 client service without dumping on single people to, uh-huh. to strain themselves and literally take years off their, their lives. lives. Mm-hmm. We should not be allowed to do that. We right. should not be allowed to create cultures where we're taking years off of people's life for any price tag. I don't care how much you get paid. Mm-hmm. That is, it's, It goes against some of the principles of law, actually, about allowing people to do self-harm. It really does. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things that I think our industry really needs to come to terms with. We need to take a real good look in that mirror and think about who we want to be and what yeah. kind of culture. What kind of legacy we want to leave. Yeah. So the shift you're talking about,
1: obviously, is to put on the front end what we now have on the back end. So on the back end, we have this wonderful well-being movement. We have all these well-being professionals. We have all these events. We have all this focus on well-being, which all should be on the front end. All of these things that we're talking about, the, the idea of self-care, the idea of not being available 24-7 the idea of the billable hour not being almighty God, and that is what is supposed to be pushing you if you're working in a large firm, all of those things. We need to move it from the back end to the front end, going in, so that it's going to be, again, a much healthier profession and have much healthier professionals. And much healthier professionals are going to really be much more successful with the clients that come to you. So there are, tremendous benefit in looking at the way we're doing things. I mean, thank God we're doing them, but now we really have to shift them in a different way. So when a Gen Z person who is graduating law school is looking at work and looking maybe at working for a big firm and seeing what this big firm has to offer, it's going to be much more enticing to them if they know they're going to have flexibility, if they know they can put their self-care first if they know that these are really the ideals of this particular firm that they're looking at or the workplace that they're looking at.
2: That's absolutely right. And Gen Zers, if you are listening, keep it up. You are the target audience. You have a lot of power here. Absolutely. Be really selective. And also firms, it's really easy for you to stand out amongst your peers by doing the right thing. Absolutely. (laughs) If you actually put these things into practice, you will be high on that list. I actually read...
1: And I can't remember where it was because it was a while ago, but I actually read there was one firm who was actually awarding a certain amount of billable hours for their employees who could prove that they were practicing self-care.
2: OMG. Is that
1: amazing? I mean, that is so creative. I don't know who thought about that, but I think that is really So wonderful. I love that. I love that. I would love to hear,
2: if anyone knows about this, please contact (laughs) us. We want to hear more about this. I'm going to hand it over to Angie because we have one last question for you. Even though this was way too quick, Eileen, we're going to have to figure out something else because this is not enough for me. But go ahead, Angie.
3: Thank you, Eileen. And I mean, as always, you always bring up such good points. But before I get into my question, I mean... Whenever I hear the argument, well, I wasn't coddled, and neither should these younger generations. I mean, imagine if we felt that way about indoor plumbing;
2: <laughs> we would still be using
3: outhouses, and for we'd be using outhouses, and for what reason? Oh you know, my God, Angie, thank you, us, yeah. thank you for that. Indoor plumbing. I have yeah. to <laughs> jump in
4: with a quote that I've seen circulating the internet about when typewriters came into fashion. And everyone thought that you would never write again. And they were concerned that you would lose the art of handwriting because there were typewriters now. And I think that's so funny. And before that, it was not being able to etch your words into stone. Why would you do that if you had ink? Um, Don't be afraid of of evolution and progress.
2: Absolutely. All right. I'm going to pump it up one more notch since you guys are all giving these great analogies. This one is a little this one's a little sticky, but I have definitely even said this to people to their face. When I hear, but it's just the business model, that's what the business model is. If you don't want to sign on to the business model, then don't apply for these jobs. It's the business model. That is the exact same thing people said about slavery. Mm. So just think about that. Wow. What does your support of certain business models mean about your values? What does it mean about what side of history you're on? Because when you really think about that, if you're really trying to pull all the details and everything that we're flushing out and make it as simple as something as silly as a business model, we know where you stand. So just food for thought. That's pretty powerful.
3: Speaking of culture shift, aspiring lawyers have to go through a character and fitness interview before they can be admitted to the bar. This process is used by state bar association, evaluates an individual's fitness to practice law. But as we have mentioned, culture shifting. And some, you might say many argue that these questions that are asked during these interviews can be intrusive. So why are these questions being asked and how is the process changing if it's changing?
1: The process is definitely changing. And this is one thing that I can say Being part of this, I am extremely proud of because we worked very hard to have the most intrusive question removed uh, from the bar application several years ago. And that question, it was so intrusive because it asked uh, prospective bar members about their mental health and substance use background if they've ever been treated how they were treated, when they were treated. They actually had to submit records. If they were inpatient, they had to submit records. Now, we work with the character and fitness committees, especially in the first and second department and with the attorney grievance committees. But in the character and fitness committees, they very often will refer them to Lawyer's Assistance Program for an evaluation. So if a bar applicant has had a history of issues So they could be related to a substance use problem. It could be arrest for for possession. It could be arrest for driving while impaired. It could be mental health issue. It could be assault. It could be a number of different things. If they see a pattern and they're concerned with it, they refer them to us for an evaluation because they want to make sure that at this point in time, at the time that they're applying, that they are fit to practice, that they've addressed those issues. And they are now fit to practice. Now, nobody has a crystal ball about the future. So nobody's saying, okay, well, are they going to be okay in 15 to 20 years? We can't say that. But we can say, yes, this individual has addressed those issues. Or in some cases, no, they really haven't. And they need time to. In which case, we will work with them. We work with many bar applicants. We can start actually working with them while they're in law school, while they're in law students, if they're 1Ls and they know that they're going to have problems at character and fitness. We'll start working with them while they're still law students. So by the time they get to character and fitness, they have documented the work that they have done to address their issues. So just to get back to what it was like when that question was on the bar application, I would get reams and reams of records for individuals who had been in, say, mental health treatment, inpatient mental health treatment, something that would first come to the committee. So I say to myself, okay, these committee members, these committee staff are all lawyers. How are they interpreting these records? Who's reading these records? And then they send them to me. I should never see them. And then the other important thing was that all of these documents were becoming part of this individual's permanent record. So if they were to leave New York and say wanted to get admitted in California, that whole entire record would get transferred to any other state or country they wanted to be admitted in. So it would follow them everywhere. So we are one of only, believe it or not, maybe a dozen states that have had that question removed. There are many states that have, still have these very intrusive questions that they ask about a person's mental health background or substance use background or arrest records. Yes, they have to. They they definitely have to show if they've been arrested for any reason. But as far as the mental health part and the substance use part, we got that question removed. So we're really very happy about the fact that we were one of maybe a dozen or so states that have been successful in having that removed.
2: That's amazing. and. Wow. Just wow. I mean, you, no one can see us, but I was just like, my mouth was open listening to what folks had to do because it's, I mean, the hypocrisy, right? Like I should actually, I should have gotten a questionnaire from the legal industry to find out how likely was it was that you were going to give me mental health issues. Let's be real here. What, what was the whole conversation on? Like, how yeah. oh, dare you? Yeah. Wow.
1: The so, goal. I, I just want to say that we are so fortunate to have two attorneys that have been they've both been committee chairs they're both still involved with our committee who have helped so many applicants get admitted who worked with them pro bono to have to get applicants admitted and also to get attorney help attorneys who've been suspended and in some cases disparred get reinstated so we amazing also, yes so we also work with attorneys who've been suspended and disbarred. But as far as admission, we do our best to help. We get many students that call us, especially after we've done a presentation on preparing for the admission process. We get many calls from students who who ask us questions who are so concerned that if they've had one speeding ticket, they won't be admitted. And we're able to certainly help them understand that's not going to prevent them from being admitted. But for the ones who've had Serious issues, we can support them. They well, are able to become admitted. Yeah. Thank
2: you so much for all the work you do. Thank you for being here with us. I, I feel like this can't be the one time. I feel like there's so many more things we want to hear about. Thank you so much for being here. It's been such a pleasure having this conversation with you today. Thank
1: you so much for inviting me. And if you want to have me back, I would love to come and talk to you about many other things.
2: Oh, the people want it. We want it. We're gonna. We're definitely gonna do it. So stay tuned, folks. Thanks again, Aileen. Thank you so much, everyone.
3: Thank you for listening to our conversation with Eileen Travis, Executive Director of the Legal Assistance Program at the City Bar. And welcome back to Deep for the People. We're here to curate a selection of literature, media, and discussions that cast a spotlight on all things deep for your feed. It's about embracing diverse voices, stories, and perspectives
4: to foster an inclusive community. Mary Ellen, start us off. Thanks, Angie. So what I have for you today is less of a resource and more of a practice. And so I want to talk about using and consuming social media intentionally. Doing this protects your mental health. It further safeguards you from misinformation and disinformation, and it minimizes burnout. I know for me, I hear a lot about social media detoxes. And since I've started practicing a more intentional consumption of my social media, I haven't felt the need to detox from anything. So I have a couple tips to get you started. Uh, First one being seek out accounts that align with your values and provide actionable steps. My second tip would be to engage thoughtfully. So seek out and engage in discussions that grow your community, but also challenge you to grow as well. And tied in with that thoughtful engagement is more than just the headlines. Headlines are meant to kind of give you a snapshot and draw you in. I like to think of it as respecting the author enough to take in their words rather than just assuming that you already know. And finally, if nothing else, interact and engage with the media that you want amplified. So sharing, liking, commenting all informs the algorithm that not only do you want to see more of this content, but it pushes out the content to more people as well. All first
2: so my content this time around is a little bit different and weird. It's actually a short video called The Egg. And apparently this video, the story behind it, is from a short story with the same title. But the, the version that I've seen, it's actually thanks to my son who watches and consumes lots of science-based videos on YouTube. And there's this one org, and I might butcher this name, so please forgive me. It's called Kurzgazat. And they make these amazing short videos on a bunch of different topics. A lot of them are science-based, which is how we got into them. My son was watching all their like deep ocean and dinosaur videos. But then they also do videos on like mental health, well-being. And they even have some self-referential videos on their organization and how they do what they do because they really research a topic very well and get a lot of data and research and put together this really beautiful story. Now, the one that I'm referencing today, The Egg, I believe they put out in 2019, and it's not a science video or mental health video necessarily, but I think it is very much DEIB. And in the short story, without ruining it for folks, because I do think people should, should give it a listen and a watch, it's only seven minutes long, and so we'll put the link in the show notes, but the long and the short of it is this idea that our universe is basically like an egg and that... Our experience as human beings is just one piece of our overall experience because this universe was made for us, humanity. And so it's this idea that we are, at least a piece of us, is in every single person and in every single life form that has ever existed and will ever exist. And the whole goal of this experiment of life is to evolve and to be better humans. And only when we have experienced all of life experiences? Will we mature enough to go into the next level of our existence of our being? And in the short story that I'm reading here, I, got, I saw it on Wikipedia that explains it. They say you evolve to a godlike being or something like that. I don't even think you have to go there. It's more about understanding the human experience and being elevated to that. But I couldn't think of a better message and video To recommend right now. There's a line in the video that really sticks out to me. The way it starts out, it's like a 48-year-old man dies suddenly. That's how the video starts. And then he's in the afterlife and he's talking to this being who's explaining why he's there. And as he's learning about his human existence and all his human existences, that he's been every type of person and all the stuff, he comes to the realization, wait, I was Hitler? And the deity is like, yeah, And you were also every single person he did harm to. And just that idea that we're all capable of the full range of humanity and the full range of experiences, I think is an important one to reflect on. But I remember after seeing that video and hearing it, I thought, wow, I think people could learn so much from thinking about all the ways We experience life on earth. And so I put it out there because I think we need messages like this. And I highly recommend just checking out their other content. They have amazing stuff on mental health and and well-being. Their video on loneliness, I thought was so well done and really gives practical tips to people on what you can do in terms of your mental health and being just to make your life more fulfilled and happier. So that's my recommendation. Angie, what do you got? Thanks, Tanya. My deep for your feed
3: is, surprise, surprise, a miniseries called When They See Us. When They See Us is a Netflix drama series that tells a true story of the Central Park Five, now known as the Exonerated Five, a group of five Black and Latino teenagers who were wrongfully convicted of the brutal assault of a white female jogger in Central Park in 1989. The series follows the lives of these young men, Kevin Richardson, Raymond Santana, Antron McRae, Issa Salam, and Corey Wyde, from the time of their arrest through their trial, imprisonment, and eventually their exoneration. It explores the systemic racism, injustice, and police coercion that led to their wrongful convictions. So this miniseries came out in 2019, so why am I talking about it now in 2023? Well, this past November 7th, Yusuf Salam just became the representative for the Central Park District and is now serving on the City Council. This win comes after more than two decades after the DNA evidence overturned his conviction where he served seven years in prison. It's really important, and if you haven't watched it yet, if you haven't educated yourself on this story, I highly recommend you go back and watch it and see where all of these Exonerated Five are now, what it did to their lives, and listen to their stories. It's really important, and it's a moving piece. It's a hard watch, but it's needed, so that's my deed for the day. All right. So that wraps us up for today. Thank you, Tanya and Mary Ellen. So let's hear from you. Have you come across a book that reached shaped your worldview, a movie that stirred impactful conversations, or a documentary that unveiled new realities? Share it with us. Please send all submissions to buildingbelonging at nycbar.org. We would love to hear from you. We have great content, but we also want to hear content that you've come across. So please send us your submissions. Together, let's make waves and propel positive change. Until next time, keep building belonging in every space.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the New York City Bar Association podcast. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you listen find more City Bar podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, iHeart, or at our website at www.nycbar.org podcasts. Be sure to check out This Lawyer's Life, a professional development podcast where we talk with lawyers about seizing opportunities, learning lessons the hard way, and about what makes them tick. This podcast was produced and edited by Eli Cohen.